0: everybody, welcome to episode 32 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. I'm Chris. Nice to see you today, Chris. Hello. It's wintry here. It's chilly. Yeah, I got down into the 20s. I know. I had my fire going last night, my heat going, my wool blanket on (laughs) the bed. Um, And I have, in case you guys hear it, I have a fly in my house that I've decided that, you know, they're Certain bugs that survive Armageddon, <laughs> this fly is one of them, so yeah. you might hear some buzzing Sounds if that like reminds you of summer or small something. Small helicopter in the back. Right. Us. We have a big, big-ass fly, too. Really? It's yeah. It's funny. They're, They're like really, the holdouts. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And these little other odd bugs, there's some, are they stink bugs? I don't remember their names. They're really kind of cute. They look like triangles almost. Yeah. And they walk real slowly. You're the
0: only person I know that would yeah. call a bug cute. I'm so oh. happy that you feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, we wanted to talk about, and since yesterday was Veterans Day, and I'm sitting today across... Veterans Day. I thought yesterday was, yeah. today. Today's Veterans Day. Sorry.
1: Yesterday was the Marine Corps birthday. Oh. That is the big deal. Yes. everyone got
0: yesterday off. That was just, like, the faux Veterans That was, Day. yeah, that was, okay. like,
1: the federal holiday. Okay. But, I, yeah, today... Is the eleventh?
0: Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. So thank you for your service, Chris. Well, you're welcome, Emily. It's my pleasure and my honor. And um, we have a a listener. I think he listens, but someone that I follow on Facebook that posted recently about this really cool um, organization called United for the Troops, and they send care packages to the troops. And one of the things they're looking for is journals. Just you know, blank journals for service people, all sizes. Yeah, composition size. Yeah, Yeah. larger, smaller. And I just think it's a lovely thing. And um, so he has sent me the address to send journals. So if any of you listeners are interested, I mean, it's the season is coming of giving, and I'm always looking of ways to give that are a little bit unusual and different and um, philanthropic in nature. And so I think this is a really cool. So, again, if you're interested in donating some journals, any size, any shape, but blank, don't send your diary. (laughs) Um, We have the address, so just email us at bookcougars at gmail.com, and you can get some in the mail. Excellent. Yeah. That's a great organization. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And we have two read-alongs coming up. We do. We thought we'd run the dates past everyone again. The first one is The Heart is a Lonely Hunter" by Carson McCullers. That will be December, this. if you can get your comments to us by December 7th. Comments, questions, things you'd like us to attempt to discuss, we'd be happy to include those. We'll be recording on December 8th and the episode
0: will come out just days after that. Right. And we already have listeners who are Reading, so I yeah. feel like an underachiever. I know. We've got somebody, some overachievers out there. I've
1: heard a couple have already finished it. <laughs> yeah. And, and oh, yeah. It, so, yeah. yeah.
0: So, yeah. Um, so we're gonna we got to get started on that. And then we haven't picked the dates for the next read along, but we have picked the book. We think it's going to be in February. Yeah. And it'll be Maurice or Morris, depending on your
1: side of the issue. E.M. Right. Uh, Forster's n- semi-autobiographical novel growing up as a gay man in england in the what was it in the 20s What's it i think it's the 20s, the 20s. Yeah. yeah yeah so excited so, about both yeah. these reads please
0: join us so that
1: one will be in february we figure january might be too quick and everybody's a little bit too busy and recovering
0: right from the holiday season and getting in gear for the new year or maybe you're just reading all the stacks of books you got as gifts over the holidays Totally. That happens, right? <laughs> That's where I want to spend use my those January. Gift cards. Like, I, I like the gift cards. Me too. Like, I know? love getting a gift card. I love it. <laughs> I think it.
1: giving books can be dicey mm-hmm. unless somebody gives you a list of what they're mm-hmm. interested in. Because yeah. when you're a book lover, I think people will either just keep giving you the books or they just start giving you the gift card yeah. because they know, like, I don't know what she's read. She reads right. everything. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or maybe she's like, I was in RJ's the other day and there were these beautiful. They have these classics now, and they change, you know, the covers. They make these beautiful covers or just have it packaged in a cool way. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, that would be a fun thing to buy for myself. Yeah. You know, with a gift card.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, speaking of RJ Julia, their members' members, uh, weekend sale is this weekend. Yeah. I'm going to be taking my mom and later today to do a little book shopping. Nice. She's in town visiting from Chicago. Lovely. Well... With A Visitor, have you just read anything? I have just read. I, I actually finished two of the books I've been reading. I uh, Death Comes. That was the the new Willa Cather and Edith Lewis mystery. Right. Which I told you about. Yeah. yeah. Sue Helgarth. This is the second one in her Willa Cather and Edith Lewis series. And I like this one a lot. I oh, really good. enjoyed it. Um, I think I mentioned the first one was a lot challenging for me. But this one was just so much fun. It's set in um, New Mexico, where Cather had spent some time living there during the summer months, I think. She was there in, I think it was like 1914, 1915, or 15 and 16. And then again in 25, 25, 1925, and possibly 1926. I guess they're not 100% sure if she was there in 1926. Hmm from what the from what Sue wrote in her um in her postscript, so this novel is set in nineteen twenty six in New Mexico when Cather is working on writing Death comes for the archbishop and it's a lot of fun Mabel dodge lewin I think that's how uh, you pronounce her name. She was a real wild, wealthy woman who was out there. I think she had like three or four husbands she ended up marrying a Native American man out in New Mexico, which was technically illegal at the time, Hmm. mixing of the races. Um, And he actually lost his his standing Hmm. in his community, although he was still a part of it. Uh, So anyway, long story short, Sue, the author, puts in a lot of factual stuff that we know about what Cather was doing and what these other people were doing, like Mabel Dodge and... D.H. Lawrence lived out there. So she has that factual stuff mixed in with this mystery. Mm -hmm. And the mystery is a woman's body had been found the year before when Catherine Lewis were there. They found this woman's dead body. Mm -hmm. So they've been stewing about it this whole year. And when they go back to visit, they ask if anything had been found out about who she was or who murdered her. And... Nothing had been found out. Nothing had been done. And then two more bodies of women show up. that have been decapitated. Oh, creepy. And the mystery takes off from there.
0: But this is not true.
1: This is not true. Okay. No, the mystery okay. is all made all right. up. Okay. Just want to make sure. I'm it is based loosely on fact, too, on the, the uh, enslavement of women from, you know, the early days of the 20th century hmm. to contemporary days. Yeah. And the... Very early days of the FBI oh. working out mm. in that area. Even though they didn't necessarily have offices there, they did send agents apparently. And Capone had, Al Capone from Chicago fame had some dealings out there too with prostitution and mm. saloons and whatnot. Mm. So it's, it, if you're a history buff, if you like New Mexico, if you're into Willow Cather, there are just a lot of great angles for people to be interested. It's this perfect novel. for you. Yeah, and I think the the writing is is uh, tighter than the first one. There's more of a, I don't, I hate to use the word thrust for the mystery, but mm-hmm. there there is that. There's uh, more compelling reading for me, at least anyway. So my only thing is that the ending could have been wrapped up a little tighter or a little mm-hmm. faster mm-hmm. with a little more energy, maybe. Okay. But I enjoyed it. So again, that's Death Comes, a Willa Cather and Edith Lewis mystery by Sue Halgarth. Check it out! It just came out this month. Okay, October. I was going to say
0: because you have yeah. an advanced reader copy. Yeah, advanced okay. reader
1: copy, and that again too. Like you never know with an advanced reader copy how much actually gets changed, right? From when that sure. gets put out, because there's still some authors are still tweaking things and really mm-hmm. doing major revisions, and others that might just be small proofreading things that are right. checked out. You never know. Yeah, but so anyway, cool. And didn't somebody reach out to us who oh, knew right. the author?
0: They worked together, I they think. They worked together, yeah. 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 Yeah, that was really cool. That's awesome. I'm sorry. I wish I really remembered your name. That was a great email to get. We love hearing from listeners, especially yeah. when there's a connection to the books that we're reading. Exactly, you know? yeah. So thank you for sharing. So much fun. Well, I read a book that I wasn't planning to read, but it was one of those... Um, Spontaneous pickups at the library when I was uh, walking past the seven day reads. (laughs) And when I get a seven day read, sometimes it just really encourages me to go home and crack the binding, you know. So this one is called Mrs. Fletcher by Tom Parada. Some of you may have heard of him. He wrote The Leftovers, which is also, I think, it's like a Showtime or HBO series now. And I'd heard him interviewed on Terry Gross's um, Fresh Air, and it was a very compelling interview. And so when I saw the book sitting there, I thought, okay, I'm going to grab it. And the premise is it's about a woman who's a single mother. Her son is heading off to college. She's been divorced for some time, and um, he heads off to college. But as he's the day that they're packing the car to move him out, his girlfriend that he has broken up with comes over. They're upstairs in his room, mom walks up to kind of say it's time to go, and she hears them having an intimate moment, and hears her son say something out loud to the woman that's very disturbing to her, Hmm. that's kind of like, you know, pornographic in nature, and so it makes her start to think about all of that, and about intimacy, and about pornography, And um, after dropping her son off at school and kind of entering her new life, which is very different, I'm here to say, as someone who has done it, you know, you put a lot of interest and effort into your children and then you wake up one morning and they are gone, you know. Um, They do return, but they are gone for a little while. She starts to watch porn.
1: Interesting.
0: On her phone, I believe it's on her phone. And so then she starts to kind of... Look at her own life, and she's the executive director of the senior center, the local senior center. Um, so it it raises a lot of things, you know. It raises the whole notion of, you know, I, I think it's interesting in a in a person's the the chapter of a person's life once their children go off to school. I mean, I've seen happily married couples look at each other and face each other without this, you know, their children in the room anymore and renegotiate their relationships. And the same goes if you're single, mm-hmm. you know, you have a different, different time. It's all about time, I think, of, of and ways to spend your time and the choices you make around that. Um, So she starts to watch porn and then she starts to have a question about what kind of porn she's watching and the availability of porn, you know, which, is something that's different now when everyone's carrying little computers around in their mm-hmm. back pocket. And um, she also s- evaluates the question of when is something a habit and when does it become an addiction, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really interesting thing to think about, yeah. you know. Um, and even just these phones, you know, I've talked about this. I think one of my goals for this year was to spend less time with my phone in general, well, you know. Yeah. But when you then are watching pornography on your phone, you know, is this a habit? Is it an addiction? I personally have a theory that things be change from habit to addiction when they start negatively impacting your life. But yeah, you know, when you start giving you know, up other things in your life for just right. that one thing. Yeah. yeah. Or you, you know, it affects your relationships negatively, or, you know, you develop an addiction that prevents you from showing up to work, or, you know, whatever it yeah. is. Whereas habits are, you know, tend to be a little different. But I that is I am no psychologist, but that's something I thought about as I was reading the book. Yeah. So anyway, there's other there's another cast of characters, people that she works with at the senior center and um, you know, uh, friends that she has and her ex-husband who's remarried and ha- they have an autistic son. So there's a little thread of that in there. Mm-hmm. And also just the thread of, you know, late teenagers and how self-involved they are in their lives and you know, she still wants to be a part of his life, but He doesn't necessarily want her to be. And then he goes off to college and isn't very successful in college. So there's that thread, too. So it's a very interesting book. It's not just about pornography. (laughs) But there are some, you know, sexual scenes for sure. Mm -hmm. So if that's something that people don't want, you might avoid this book. If it's something you enjoy, run out and get it tomorrow. So um, it was interesting. I enjoyed it. It was definitely a page-turner. He's funny. I mean, it's it's touted as, you know, really a, a... comedic piece of work, I didn't laugh that much when I was reading it, yeah. so I don't know if it was maybe kind of close to home for me, because I've recently, you know, had kids go off to college, and it's kind of bittersweet, so maybe I was more sympathetic to that part of her situation.
1: Yeah. Well, it might be challenging, too, to make pornography a funny matter. Yeah. I mean, what a was it uh, symbolic, or was part of the humor that it was a woman who was getting addicted to pornography? As opposed to a man, a male character?
0: No, I think the humor was more in um, just, you know, facing our lives and, you know, the humor wasn't around the pornography at Mm -hmm. all. Okay. At least I didn't think any of that was funny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The humor was more just around, you know, facing yourself and facing life and things that happen. Um, I actually really didn't think the book was funny. Yeah. You know, at all. Mm -hmm. I don't think I laughed once. I thought that as I was reading reviews, I was like, I don't think I even chuckled. Yeah, you know, it's
1: interesting, isn't it, about that? It's hard
0: for me to find humor in books, too. Mm -hmm. I don't know.
1: When it happens, it's a joy, but I was reading another book that was touted as being, you know, laugh out loud funny, and I Mm -hmm. thought, this is just painful. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think there's anything funny
0: about what the subject was. I'm glad to hear you say that. I also just went and saw the movie The Square, which they're saying is this huge comedy and I was like it was not funny at all yeah so yeah you know I'm like maybe I'm just a buzzkill I don't know (laughs) anyway I would be interested just to hear what other people think of it I would also I also kind of as I was reading it thought I wonder if this would be a good audio so if anyone Mm -hmm. does listen to it feel free to shoot us an email I'd be interested to know so excellent Mrs. Fletcher by Tom Parada Mrs. Fletcher. I mean, that's just a loaded word or name right there, you know. So, (laughs) interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, I also finished The Leader's Bookshelf by Admiral Mm. James Stavridis. He's retired from the U.S. Navy. And then R. Manning Ansel was his co-author. And this is a book. uh, It's designed as a leadership book to help people interested in leadership develop a reading habit what books to read to get started, how to create your own library, you know, how to make time to read. And then also, I was interested to know, towards the end, they also talked about the importance of writing, writing and publishing as Mm -hmm. a blueprint for success.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's really interesting. So these are the top 50 books recommended by senior military leaders in the country, four-star generals, admirals, whatnot. And... Some of the books were pretty standard. You know, The Art of War, The Killer Angels uh, is in here as well. There were a couple of big surprises. Now, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird might be a surprise for some people, but I don't really think it is. I mean, To Kill yeah. a Mockingbird, I think, is a book that could make it onto any list that is ever made mm-hmm. in America about books. I agree. I mean, because yeah. it, it has everything in mm-hmm. it. Uh, but one book that really surprised me was *A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court*, the novel oh. by Mark Twain. I was so surprised yeah. to see that listed in here,
0: but it was, and I won't tell you why. You have to read the book yourself. Oh, so is uh, that the, so? That's how it's set up. They have the yes. books, and then they talk about why they think that book. Is exactly. So here, for it. example,
1: let's look. I'll just open it randomly. So here, book number fifteen is *Truman* by uh, David McCullough. That came out in 1992. So it tells you who it's recommended by, by General Stephen Lawrence of the U.S. Air Force in his latest command. A little blurb about his reading. They pull a quote from the book, their favorite quote. They talk a little bit about the author and then about the book. And then this, there's a section on leadership lessons summarized hmm. for each book, which is really helpful. hmm So I enjoyed it. I enjoyed knowing a little bit more about each recommender Mm -hmm. as well as the author of the book, about the book, and then pulling out those leadership lessons.
0: I wonder how they chose the people
1: to, the leaders to ask. You know, that's a good question. A lot of it is, you know, these top leaders, they are usually serving together on a committee of some kind, Uh, or they've risen in the ranks together. I don't, you know, there's not that many four-star generals and admirals, you know, yeah. to choose from in some ways. Uh, but these are people who are, and, and there are, they they do say, not everybody is a heavy reader. Mm-hmm. But one of the curious things that I found when I was in the Marine Corps was that there are a lot of people who read. And I was always a big reader. Mm-hmm. Um, I could tell you a funny story, too. <laughs> one time I was uh, getting to my, from boot camp to my technical school, And I arrived uh, a little bit earlier before the class actually started. So I was assigned to work for this master gunnery sergeant, which is a very high enlisted rank. Um, He was such a great guy. He called everybody Hamburg. (laughs) Hamburg. Uh, I can't think of his name right now, Um, but he was an African-American gentleman. Very high ranking. So I was just assigned to him and I would wash his floors and answer the phone and just run and do errands for him. He was really great. He was like a grandfather type figure. And so when there was nothing to do, when he found out I was a reader, he's like, just sit and read your book and answer the phone when it rings, you know. So I was sitting there reading one day and a major walks in. And this major walks in and he looks at me reading and he looks at the master gunnery sergeant. And he's like, really, you're just sitting there reading? And top, as they call a a master sergeant, um, he says, well, you know, why don't you ask her what she's reading before you judge her? Mm -hmm. And he's like, what are you reading? And it was a biography of Chesty Puller, who was one of the most highly decorated Marines in history. (laughs) Chesty Puller is like, if you've ever seen a Marine Corps movie about boot camp, you say goodnight to Chesty Puller when you're in bed. Good night, Chesty, wherever you are. So, you know, so there were people who, you know, I guess the major probably thought I was sitting there reading a romance novel or something, (laughs) who knows. So that shut them up pretty fast, you know, which is kind of funny. So the point being, not everybody reads in the military, but in recent decades there's been more of a concerted effort to establish professional reading lists Mm -hmm. for each branch of the service Mm -hmm. and then broken down by rank. So, mm-hmm. like, if you're a private, this is what you should start with. You, when you're getting promoted to be a corporal or a sergeant, you know, you should start reading these because they teach different leadership lessons at each level.
0: And history, too, I would think. Yeah, there are history, some that are absolutely. History. Yeah. And
1: so yeah. many, so many of these books recommended and that are on the Marine Corps reading list, you know, they deal with history and battles and mm-hmm. professionals who've gone before, yeah. who've served before, I should say. Um, So anyway, it was a really neat book. One thing was funny was they were talking about uh, the admiral uh, who wrote the book. You know, he's been stationed all over the place, you know, at least 17 moves in 30 years or whatever the case was. And he had 4,000 books. Oh my gosh. And so his wife finally capped him off at 5,000 books. (laughs) So I'm thinking like, okay, if even an admiral in the U.S. Navy gets... You know, capped off by his wife. (laughs) For Some of you readers who I know have to sneak
0: books into your house. Right, right. Don't feel too bad you're not alone. Yeah.
1: Even America's military
0: leaders have to deal with that, yeah. I can't even picture how much space that would take in your house. That's a lot of books. It is a lot of books. Yeah, that's That's a library, for sure. Definitely, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, again, it's a really neat book. I I would recommend it for... uh, It's certainly not just related to military. It's leadership in general. Mm -hmm. Although a lot of the books... uh, you know, do lean towards military subject matter, not all do. There there are novels as well, as I think I mentioned. One of the best recent novels I've read of Vietnam is Matterhorn mm-hmm. by Carl Marlantes. That's mm-hmm. listed in here as well, which I was happy to see as a recent read. But really, I think anybody who is a voracious book reader would probably be interested in checking this book out. Yeah, So yeah. yeah.
0: But look out, it's going to add to your TBR, it sounds it like. It will definitely add to your TBR. <laughs>
1: but it's also, you know, a nice resource to have. I think it's also in ebook form, which they talk about a little bit in here. You know, what format do you choose? Mm, now, with all yeah. of these different things, and so many people love the feel of a book... Mm-hmm. But then, really, if you're, you know, de- wherever you're deployed, if you have access to a Charger, you know, having an e reader, you can yeah. have your whole Endless. library on that. Yeah. So, and they talked about doing a hybrid kind of library where you have the volumes that you love the most and that you return to regularly mm-hmm. to have those in hard copy, and then maybe to have the quick, quicker reads that you just kind of read once and go just do that as an e reader yeah. or a digital copy. Yeah. So, again, that's the Leader's Bookshelf. By Stevritis and Ansel. It's also a new book and it's from the Naval Institute Press. I should say that I did, this is a re- review copy I received. But it's out now? You it's think? out now. Great. Yeah.
0: Well, I also read a, a book, uh, called, <laughs> as opposed to, <laughs> I'm sorry that didn't come out the way I wanted, called The Bone Garden by Tess Gerritsen. Oh, cool, you finished I did finish textiles. it. Um, I have talked in the past about how I really, every once in a while, like to read a book that's just about cupcakes and love. This book did not have any of that, (laughs) as you might not be surprised by the title of it, The Bone Garden. Um, But this, I think you would love this book, Chris. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's historical, it's mystery, it's gory, (laughs) lots of blood. (laughs) Not too much blood. Well, yeah, lots of blood. But so Tess Gerritsen is an M.D., She's a trained physician. She was a, a physician, and I was reading about her that she, when she was on her first maternity leave is when she wrote her first novel. So then she went back to being a doctor. So she's been a doctor, and then when she retired from being a doctor, now she's a full-time novelist, mm-hmm. but she did both for many years. Oh. So the premise of this book, it, starts, it goes back and forth in time, um, and the back in time is in the 1830s. So it's a time in medical practice when they didn't even know you were supposed to wash your hands. Mm. So some of the scenes in when they're practicing medicine, it's so hard to take because they're just like, it's a maternity ward (sighs) and they just keep checking every woman with one towel that they're wiping their hands on. Ah! And then there's also um, a desire that part of the um, storyline is about kids who are medical students and there's a need for cadavers but there wasn't a really healthy way to get cadavers so there's a character in the book who's who's digging up graves yeah. and selling bodies and they're very diseased bodies So then sometimes the medical students get sick because they're not washing their hands and these people are really diseased. So it's disgusting. Yeah. But then there's a a forward that, you know, present day also where this woman discovers, she buys a home and discovers a skeleton in her garden when she's starting a new garden. Interesting. So that's the connection to back and forth because the skeleton is from back in the day. And another thing that's interesting, and you will probably understand this more than me and I haven't had time, I literally finished it this morning, (laughs) But Oliver Wendell Holmes is one of the characters oh, in the book. And he was a physician and a writer. Mm-hmm. So um, I thought that was interesting. And he ends up being the person who's writing a letter that they they find. They end up going through archives in the future and find letters that he's written. So that was kind of cool. Fascinating, yeah. yeah. Very cool. And there's someone who's killing people called the Reaper, you know, the something Reaper and so that's where the slasher part of the book comes in and that's back in the day not in the present Um, so she's a very um, I definitely didn't figure it out which I sometimes try to do you know and, and it was a very complicated storyline, mm-hmm. but I kept with it, even with all the different names and everything. So I was kind of proud of myself. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was a page turner, but it wasn't scary. Like, I really avoid books that are going to scare me because, you know, I live in the woods by myself, right. as I've said. Yeah. Um, and I didn't feel scared. You know, nothing was like, oh, my neighbor could be doing this, mm-hmm. which is what I think about, mm-hmm. like when you read Silence of the Lambs, for example. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, so I, and she's got, she's the one that has this Rizzoli and I. Miles yeah. series C- i think TV series. yeah well book series that they've made into right, a to- right. TV series, yeah. and i think that that's her most recent book that just came out mm-hmm. in the last month or two i think yeah is um is in that series yeah i definitely i have a reviewed copy of that right. one i want to yeah. read yeah for sure yeah mm-hmm. and um and but so she has so this book the bone garden is not in that series it's a standalone okay. and it's one the reason I picked it up is it's one that she says is one of the favorite books that she's written mm-hmm. and it was published in 2007 great
1: so. that's cool yeah creepy could you I mean that was like a big uh, that was a job to be a grave robber to I can't to get imagine. bodies for med schools Ugh. yeah
0: I can't imagine <sighs> any part of it oh. actually and then some of the med students are performing you know, are, are are um you know working on the cadaver, and it's mm-hmm. someone they were just taking care of and saw die a week ago. So crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: And I've been in a cadaver lab, and I've worked. I had a work session in a cadaver lab when I was in massage school. Oh
0: God!
1: And it was pretty amazing. I chose not to go to that school in the long run, but the fact that they let us—it was a kind of like a mini class. Mm. Um, it that was also a chiropractic school, hence the cadavers. Okay. Um. But to really see how a tendon, when you pulled a tendon, how it moved the arm. Mm. I mean it was fascinating. Yeah. I was really fascinated. I wasn't sure how I'd react once I got in there, but
0: mm-hmm. did my, it smell my, bad?
1: It smelled funky. Yeah. You know, because That's of the chemicals that they use. Yeah, yeah. And we saw the cadavers when they were about halfway through oh, their wow. their program because you know, when the body when the class first starts this uh For the chiropractors, when they first start with the cadaver, it's a fully intact body and they systematically dissect it throughout i don't know if it's one semester or two or how long they take, but I guess the teachers had explained that the smells do change, uh, I think things get more chemically and yeah. Okay. You know, so but more yeah. power too you. so i just I, I can't I imagine those early days. <laughs> Yeah, or Working no. in a field or, or mm-hmm. even just being a yeah. the med student yourself having yeah. to work on not having to but choosing to work on a body that is decomposing and Yeah. Well, and, of and
0: like. one of the things Oliver Wendell Holmes is known for in history, he went to France to study, I think to Paris, and um got a lot more training there and he's the one that came back to the states and really pushed the idea of washing your hands. Yeah. Simple idea. Simple. That changed yeah. medicine, yeah. you know. Because I think they were doing it there, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so many diseases that were transferred just from just, person to person. And yeah. to the doctors, yeah. you know, because they didn't wash their hands. Right. Ugh. So, and of course that was before. There's also a whole part of the book where they're bleeding people. Because that was also how they thought they would, yeah. you know, get rid of disease. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. uh... I know. I just, that That is one that you
1: think like. Now, I know there are a lot of funky things that people have believed throughout history. Yeah. But that is one that is just so hard to comprehend to think that, that it could actually help somebody to take their blood out of their right. body. Like, that just... Right. It's a hard one to wrap yeah. your brain around, yeah. I
0: think. Yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. So, what are you currently yeah. reading? Well, I finished
1: another thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Jumping No, back I need to apologize. Um, It was an audible. It was considered an audible book, but it's actually the lecture series... It's from the Greatest Courses series. Oh, you know, yeah. that series. Yeah. So Audible has those now. I, now. I don't know. I I purchased this a couple months ago when they had a sale. Like, buy one, get another one free of the Great Courses. And I used to check them out of the library where I worked. Because they, they have a, topics on everything. You know, mm-hmm. the humanities, the sciences. So this one that I just listened to was Espionage and Covert Operations, A Global History. And... I will not even attempt to to pronounce the professor's name, Uh, but it's a guy, I think he teaches at the University of Tennessee, or he did when this was created in 2013. It's a really cool. It it goes back to the beginning of written history, uh, you know, the Trojan horse and Mm -hmm. uh, that type of uh, covert operation, all the way up to more contemporary days, probably well until 2013, I guess, you know, because some Mm -hmm. of the... The last cases he talked about were post cold war you know nine eleven um and the like the former Russian agents being killed in England um with radioactive isotopes and things like that I found it really fascinating there there are twenty four chapters in each lecture there are lectures that are are about thirty minutes long twenty nine to like thirty one minutes and they dealt with a certain aspect of espionage or covert operations. And there are a couple lines, uh, you know, streams of inquiry that kind of he, he traces throughout the ages and the countries, which I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of heavy on American and Russian towards the end, obviously, because I think that has been the main interest for a lot of people dealing interest in the subject matter Mm -hmm. but he had some of the most odd little stories in there as well things that you don't normally hear about like i I, might have been in the in the 60s or 70s kind of at the height of the cold war the russians were experimenting with scent and dogs and Mm -hmm. looking for ways to track people that didn't necessarily deal with sight so one thing that they would do when they interrogated somebody, they'd have them sit on this pad, and they'd interrogate them and, you know, make them sweat and everything. And then they would take the pad with their scent on it and, you know, give it to a dog Tricky. and try to change, you know, get that dog to really, you know, have that person's scent imprinted mm-hmm. on them to kind of then follow them to see, you know, are they doing drops somewhere? Are they the So, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing like you don't hear about yeah. olfactory. factory. Yeah implications of spycraft and everything. Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. He talks a lot about literature, different novelists and different writers, you know, mm. Ian Fleming and John mm-hmm. Le Carré. Yeah.
0: So. Oh, how fun. Yeah. Did you feel like you were in a classroom listening or did it feel kind of just like a nonfiction book? No, this one felt like he, well, it felt like he's somebody in a
1: class talking mm. to you. I, I like this because this one didn't have any kind of clap track. i've listened to some where they clap at the end Mm -hmm. i'm thinking like okay i've never been in a class where they're clapping at the end of each lecture i've been in a big lecture hall where a guest lecturer might get a clap but um so there's none of that so you do and he has a sense of continuity saying you know in the next lecture we'll be talking more about that or he'll say you know back in lecture 12 i talked about that and so he does cross 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 reference Mm -hmm. a bit which is nice if you
0: want to go back and forward. I'm just curious. The fly the is fly. sitting on the microphone. <laughs> it is. It's sitting there. So, we, hopefully you won't hear it. We have oh a my God.
1: a snowball microphone is what yes. we use, a blue one. So we have a black fly on our blue ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Oh uh, Yeah. So anyway, yeah, so that was Espionage and Covert Operations, a global history from
0: the Great Courses series. And we will an put that author's name in the show, or okay, the lecturer's name. So in... it's
1: Professor Vejas Gabriel Lulevicius. Good job. Possibly. Yeah. I have no idea. It's Lithuanian, I think he said. Well, we'll put it in the show notes so you can find it. All right, so that was
0: what we just read. What are you currently reading, Emily? I am reading... A cookbook (laughs) that I'd like to be spending my whole day with this cookbook and actually cooking from it, which I haven't had the chance to do yet. She just hugged it and stroked it. Yes, that's right. (laughs) This is, I have talked in the past about my love of Yoram Adalenghi's cookbooks. He has Jerusalem and Plenty and one called Adalenghi. And this is his new cookbook with Helen Goh, G-O-H, and it's called Sweet... And it is just that. It's all a sweets cookbook. Mm. And um, I went to RJ Julia with my gentleman caller last weekend. And on the drive there, I was telling him that this book came out and how excited I was to get a chance to look at it. And he walked out the door with one of them under his (laughs) arm. And handed it to me, which I couldn't believe because I really wasn't planning to buy it. But he was like, I think there's something in it for me, you know, <laughs> if you own this cookbook. So the it is beautiful. It's a beautiful cookbook. The pictures are beautiful. The flavors are very unusual because mm. he is, um Ooh. yes, he's uh, Palestinian, I believe. He's Palestinian or Israeli. I can't remember. That's terrible to say because the other cookbooks he wrote with someone. And the woman, Helen Goh, has... um Asian background, so they've Mm. got the flair of both of those cultures in this book. Yeah, would you make me that? Yes, this recipe is beet, ginger, and sour cream cake. It It is so beautiful. So they have recipes that are, you know, like brownies with halva, which is a, you know, Israeli sesame seed uh, paste Mm. kind of. Well, tahini's the paste. I don't know what you consider halva the paste, but um, very unusual flavorings in here. Um, And there's an article that came out in the Times a while back, the New York Times, which is how I knew that this was coming out about them developing the perfect chocolate cake. So I'll put a link to that article in the show notes. So if nothing else, you can get that recipe. That sounds like a bold endeavor. Yes. The perfect chocolate cake. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, They have lemon and semolina syrup cakes. There's lots of syrups on the cakes, which is very traditional to actually both of their cultural backgrounds. They also have a whole section where they cook little like quick breads in cans, 14-ounce cans, Mm. which Mm. I think is such a cool idea. So I might start with one of those recipes. And then in the back, there's some, which I was reading when you walked in, Chris, there's um, just kind of some... Tricks of the trade, tricks of the baking trade that are really well written and easy to understand. Like tempering chocolate, melting butter, browning butter, um, things like that. And, you know, the temperature for your eggs. And so for someone like me, this book is kind of a dream come true. (laughs) And I own it. And I haven't had a chance to cook from it yet, which is making me crazy. But I'm hoping to do that soon. So... It would make a fantastic gift because it's so beautiful. And also, just if you're a baker and you're kind of tired of your old recipes, you won't be tired of recipes when you open this cookbook. What is it on the cover? It's beautiful. That's a fig. um, It's like a meringue with Mm. sliced figs and pistachios on Mm. top. And it looks like maybe some chocolate in the middle. Yeah. Beautiful pictures. Beautiful pictures. And... um, I highly recommend it. Sweet. By Yodam Adelenghi and Helen Goh. Cool. Well, I just started reading uh this morning.
1: Uh it's a book that's coming out later this month in November that I picked up when we were at BEA. David Bowie Made Me Gay. One hundred years of LGBT music. It's by Daryl W. Bullock. He's the author of Florence Foster Jenkins. Oh. Remember there's a movie yeah. It, yeah. Um, so this, it's really great. It's, he's looking at more, uh, at pop music, pop, folk, punk, electronica. He's, he even, he even has a chapter on country music. And he's just really talking about each chapter focuses on a different writer or musician, I mm-hmm. should say, singer, Musicians musician. Musicians are writers. Yeah. And so, like I said, I just started dipping around in it this morning I think it's really well written, and it's it's eye-opening already. He talks a bit about, from what I've gleaned, just uh, prior to the six, well, prior to like maybe the 50s and 60s, how open a lot of the blues singers were in particular, a lot of the women who sang were lesbian or bisexual, and how much more open lyrics had been. Hmm. And he also makes a comment of saying, especially in America, even... Artists, say, like, you know, Elton John, they might be openly gay and embraced for being gay. But their lyrics, they're still heterosexual lyrics. Mm. They're, you know, even a gay popular person who's an icon... Right. ...still can't sing about Mm same-sex love on American airwaves, really. Mm. So, and he's from Britain, Bullock, the the Mm -hmm. author... But it's it's very much worldwide. The first chapter starts with um, an African-American musician named Tony Jackson, who was born in the late 1800s and performed in New Orleans. Uh, another one that surprised me is a guy named Patrick Haggerty, who released the first gay country music album in 1973, which I'd never heard of, and I was a real big country music buff in my younger days up until... Mm. The time, like maybe Alabama, that group came out, and after that, I kind of lost interest in country music, but I like the older mm-hmm. classic mm-hmm. stuff, so I'm gonna have to track that down um but yeah, so he talks about disco and pop, electronic music, uh, and really, he talks about David Bowie uh, the title coming from David mm-hmm. Bowie made me gay, and the cover's really cool, yeah, it, is it has cool. this. Uh, rainbow lightning bolts coming down. The advanced reader copy that I have has a white background or white cover, but I think that the actual book might have a black cover with the rainbow lightning bolt. Cool. But yeah, so he talks just about how influential David Bowie was, that David Mm -hmm. Bowie came out in the 70s, was like, just, this is who I am, and just what that did to encourage other musicians And just kids listening at home to his music or on Mm -hmm. the radio, how groundbreaking that was Mm
0: -hmm.
1: for Mm -hmm. our generation of people who kind of grew up on that. And I know when David Bowie died, it was definitely impactful. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took over the internet for sure. And I think it was such a surprise because he didn't tell a lot of people he was (laughs) ill. Yeah. So it was, as, as, as Bullock says in the... His introduction, it was just as shocking as when um, John Lennon died. Mm. Because it was such an immediate death. Yeah. 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 But yeah, he talks about Queen, Freddie Mercury, how Freddie Mercury like never came out. He was, as he says, the word flamboyant was created, you know, like Mm -hmm. he was the embodiment of flamboyance. But still, he didn't come out and just that pressure that is much uh, more contemporary than it was in the earlier music scene
0: remember when Jacob was about eight, he was listening to a Queen song, and then he said, Mom, how come this band is called Queen when everyone in it is a guy? <laughs> <Right>? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's uh, have a little lesson. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and he said, said, uh, and I haven't read the
1: chapter yet, but it, just in the introduction talking about the song Bohemian Rhapsody, some people have claimed was an attempt of Freddie Mercury to actually come out to his fans. Oh, I don't. I've never really interpreted the song that way. Mm. I've never looked at the song yeah. through that lens, anyway. So now I'm curious to go and listen to it because mm. it's. I, I've always enjoyed that one, um, and I I've never read about music. Mm, I, you know, I mean, either. other than yeah. like a biography of Mozart, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever read about music in general. Um, and so certainly reading about the LGBT music. Yeah. I think this would be a, another great
0: gift. We're we're thinking about. Um,
1: the probably the holiday because, yes November
0: um, but although it's anyway, but, before Thanksgiving so shame on us but you know well yeah but I don't know
1: yeah yeah, it's just I, I. it's well written like I said so far I'm just dipping into it and I think if you are into music or LGBT history this would be right up your alley so again that's David Bowie Made Me Gay 100 Years of LGBT Music by Daryl W. Bullock great well I'm not reading anything else are you? I am listening to another Great Courses series, and this one it's like it's been in one ear not the other kind of, <laughs> but it's Great American Bestsellers, the books that shaped America. America.
0: Yeah. It's
1: by a professor Peter Kahn. Hmm. You know he's done all the iconic American novels you could think of. He's introducing them, mm-hmm. and it's in- enjoyable. It's interesting, but it's and I think he f- gives away the plot too much. He gives away. I mean, it's, yeah, definitely spoiler alert yeah. if you want to listen to these. Because on uh, Native Son, Richard Wright's novel, like he really gave away the whole, and some, it felt like a plot summary actually.
0: See, some people really like that. I mean, I struggle with that myself. When I'm reading a book review, I don't want to know much about the book. Mm -hmm. So I kind of skim. Like I read the beginning and I usually read the last paragraph. Did the reviewer like it or didn't they? Yeah. And then I'll read reviews after I finish books. I love to do that. Mm -hmm. But I don't like any spoilers. I don't even read the flaps of books, right? And then other people, it's like, they love to hear everything. I mean, plot twists, turns, all of it. They're in it just to read the book. You yeah. know, they don't care if they know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Then I have friends who read the end anyway when they start a book. <laughs> right? Could, so it's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. So maybe people, like maybe this great courses is designed that people don't have an intention to read them either. They that just could want be, to hear about And that's, them. yeah, it could yeah. be that totally. Yeah. And and for
1: me, I, I picked it. I, well, I chose it because it was the buy one, get one free. And I thought mm-hmm. that might be kind of fun to do a little... Yeah trip back into american books and mm-hmm. yeah, cuz i've i think read quite a lot of them that are under discussion yeah so it's just a fun thing to have on in the car when yeah. i'm driving around cool yeah so uh that is another great course Ameri- uh, great american best sellers great and that is all i'm reading right now i'm going to be start well my mom leaves on sunday tomorrow so i'll probably be starting a new novel on Monday, I'm not hundred percent what that will be yet, but you know, you know, it's always so much fun to pick what yes, you're gonna read indeed. next. So Well,
0: what about any biblio adventures? I think you had a big yeah, I did adventure. have a
1: big biblio adventure. I went to New York to see um the new Willow Cather exhibit at the New York Society Library. And I think I mentioned on our last episode that Laura and I were going to go and spend the day and and have dinner with a friend, but that didn't pan out. That morning, I just jumped on a train and went and came right back. It was really neat. I'd never been to the library before, the New York Society Library. It was founded in 1754.
0: Wow. It has
1: been around for a long time. And it was actually before the Library of Congress was established. This was the repository library for important documents and books. Because, you know, the American capital had been in New York for a while, so that made sense. They've had five different locations, and um, this is their location now. It's it's 53 East 79th Street, so Upper East Side. Gorgeous building that had been a home built in the 19-teens, and now it's a library. So Mm -hmm. it's a five-story house when you walk in. And they've had, on the back, when the library was first established at that location, they had a 12-story stacks system put on the back. Um, So I did get a tour of the library after I saw the exhibit. and the Willa Cather exhibit, it was the first time the library's put anything on about her and her relationship with the library, because... Catherine, and her partner Edith Lewis were members of the library. They joined one that was at their prior location on University Place and then actually were living closer to this location. So for the last, like, what, 20 years or so of Cather's life, she was a member of the library. Wow. So the exhibit basically is uh, three cases and three big posters explaining Cather's relationship with New York City as well as her relationship with the library. And probably the coolest thing to see are the checkout cards, the charging cards, that they call them. They're like, oh, gosh, what, maybe eight by six? I didn't measure them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you see Cather's name and Edith Lewis's name and then all the books they've checked out. That are, of course, just handwritten. Yeah, they're handwritten. They're Mm date-stamped, but it's handwritten titles. And that was just really kind of cool to see. And so the exhibit had some of Cather's novels, but then also... Some of the books she used for research while she was writing her books, especially uh, Sephira and the Slave Girl, which was her her last novel, and the only book that she wrote set in her childhood of Virginia. Hmm. So I had some of that. And I think some uh, a couple letters from people, one from Dorothy Canfield Fisher, or one to Dorothy Canfield Fisher, who was an old friend of hers, uh, about one of her novels that she was writing. Hmm. So it was neat to see. Yeah. They um I guess, you know, Cather she Cather wasn't a recluse or anything like that, but she was very private, especially after she won the Pulitzer Prize in nineteen twenty two. Her life changed dramatically mm-hmm. and suddenly everybody wanted a piece of her. Mm-hmm. So she tried really hard to not get involved in all of the the big hoo-ha that happens, you know, with yeah. fame. Yeah. She tried to really stay on the down low and maintain her privacy. So Edith Lewis became kind of like her buffer, mm-hmm. which is something that Sue Halgrith also talks about in Death Comes. She mentions that as well, mm-hmm. that Edith Lewis kind of stepped up and mm-hmm. hotels and things were in Louis, Edith's name, Edith's name mm-hmm. or Cather would make up a name. Oh, fun. Yeah but anyway it was a really great exhibit to see i think if you're in the area it'd be fun to stop in and see it i it's not uh, a major exhibit that you know you'd want to hop on a plane and see Mm -hmm. if you live out in california unless you're an extreme cather scholar you might want (laughs) to have a crazy weekend in new york um but i'm glad i went up and got to see it nice
0: well it sounds like the library is beautiful too it is beautiful
1: yeah like and so it is a subscription library i should say um So visitors can come and access the first floor. They have a reference room with a work table there and electronic catalogs. They have their old, beautiful, dark wooden card catalogs there Mm -hmm. as well along one wall. So as a visitor, you can come and access that. And if you want to see a book, you can request it in the library. Staff will bring it to you. Mm -hmm. So you can use whatever they have. But members... Only have access to the rest of the library, so they have a really lovely reading room. They have several different workrooms. They have a kids a kids section too. When uh, the librarian gave me a tour, we went through the kids section, and there were a couple um, kids in there with their moms or nannies. How fun! And uh, they have a really good audiobook collection. She hmm. pointed out in poetry and a lot of <coughs> criticism, as well as fiction and history. Cool. So It was a fun library to stop in and yeah. see. So check it out if you're in the, the neighborhood. Uh, that was the new Willow-Cather exhibit at the New York Society Library. And that exhibit does run through August of 2018. Yeah, you have a good, good amount of time to get to it. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, and you and I went on a joint jaunt together. Yes, we did. Finally. <laughs> I felt all warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> it's been a long time <laughs> since we got to spend the day together. Yeah, it was fun just to talk in the car, too. I know. We, we drove up to... West Hartford.
1: So
0: mm-hmm. that's like what about an hour, an hour. drive. Yeah. 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 So we had a nice talk there and back. Yeah. Well, and then uh Emily, me was in charge of navigating us <laughs> on the way home. I <laughs> got us I didn't get us lost. I was too busy talking and yeah. I think the GPS was talking and I was talking over the GPS. <laughs> so Chris was a trooper because it was a rainy night. Now yeah. it gets, you know, even though we went to a matinee, it was pitch black when yes. we came out, of course. Yeah. And um she we took the long ride <laughs> right way home. Let's just say in the country on a rainy, cold, dark night. Yeah. But, so it was just fun to talk. Yeah, yeah. So what we saw, we saw a
1: stage adaptation of the Diary of Anne Frank, right. which I had never seen
0: yeah, performed. I either. I, I hadn't either. I had. I had, yeah. Yeah. So that was yeah that was uplifting intense. theater. Oh, yeah. Just kidding. Um, it's dark. Badly. We <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. maybe some people might not know what the story of Anne Frank is. Right. Right. So maybe I you guess should, yeah. So Anne Frank was a
1: a young girl. What was she like? Maybe fourteen, thirteen. 13, 13 when 19, she um, yeah. she was Jewish. Her family was Jewish. Her dad moved the family from Frankfurt, Germany, when Hitler came to power, and they moved to Holland, thinking that they would be safe. But then the Germans invaded. And occupied Holland, and and Frank's father and mother made arrangements for them to go into hiding. In, like, what was it, 42 or 43? Mm-hmm. 42, I think. And yeah. so they were in this really tiny space above a factory. With another family. With another family. So it was yeah. the Frank, Mr. and Mrs. Frank, um, and the other daughter, Margot. mm mm-hmm. And then this other couple, a husband and a wife, and their son, their sixteen year old son and then later, about a year in, I think a dentist a dentist comes them. in, yeah. yeah, and so they're in this very small space okay. and it's her diary that she's writing and When I read the book, I thought she was fantastic, like mm-hmm. I really liked her mm-hmm. and but one of the things I had heard was that she was annoying mm. and, and talked all the time and the stage adaptation really kind of brings that to light that like oh dear god like here she is this living breathing fire plug who's constantly moving constantly talking which, you know i didn't I didn't really get that in the book because I right. just went along with her and what she was talking about, and I guess mm-hmm. she mentions that in the book, yeah. that you know people are always like she talks too much right and,
0: they're annoyed with her and her enthusiasm, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, and you can you know understand that as adults yeah. who understood the gravity of everything yeah, yeah. um but I, that the adaptation really brought home to me what it would have been like to be a teenager who was full of energy like that to be. Locked up and cooped up in this tiny space where you had to be quiet all day long. Right.
0: Yeah. And had to entertain yourself. Uh, yeah. I mean, the days are long mm-hmm. when you're not, I mean, I think she did some, there the, you know, some schoolwork and things mm-hmm. like that, but you know, that's a long day to entertain yourself yeah. for years. For years.
1: And so they, they did the family, um, a husband and wife who supported the family's in finding that hiding space and setting it up. It took a long time to set things up. They would come, I don't know how often, I don't remember from the book, and and bring them whatever they requested if it was possible to get. But they Mm -hmm. would also bring them food and, I think, five library
0: books a week Mm -hmm. they could get. Right. So they did have that. Yeah. But her, and then, you know, spoiler alert, I guess we should say. Yeah. Everybody parishes. I mean they they are caught. I think 2 they're betrayed, weeks betrayed, yeah. 2 weeks before Is that right? Well, there. 2 weeks.
1: I don't know if it's 2 weeks before what do you mean before liberation? Yeah. Well, I think I think it's further than that because I think she dies in the camp like 2 weeks before the the camp was liberated, I think, isn't that?
0: Yeah, but I don't think there was much time before when they were caught. Okay and sent to the camps and died but her father is the only is the sole survivor of that whole And the way the stage adaptation handled that i thought was really well done yeah because the whole cast is standing there and then the father starts to narrate the ending of each person's life and then they step off the stage yeah
1: one by one one by
0: one and then he's left behind so i thought that was well done and um you know, it was sad. There were a lot of the, the... There was an older gentleman sitting next to me that was just sobbing for the last probably 15 minutes of the play, you know. Yeah. Um, and I saw a lot of people wiping their eyes. So it was it was a very well done production. I it thought. was, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah the, I don't... I didn't keep the the booklet with the, everybody's names, but the woman, the young woman who did Anne Frank, I thought... she She... Did flow her lines a couple mm-hmm, times, mm-hmm. but like she recovered so yeah, well. Yeah. Like she didn't let her, f- she just kept going. And mm-hmm, I thought that was mm-hmm. a yeah. mark of somebody who had great stage presence. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's early on in the production. Oh, is it? I think okay. it is. I didn't okay. check the dates, but I thought everybody did a great yeah. job.
0: It was really well done. And
1: she was perfectly cast. I yeah. mean, she was, she looked very much like Anne Frank.
0: Yes. Which she, she sure did. Made it yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you to Laura, by the way, for giving up her ticket to me. Yeah. Laura
1: Appreciate had it. seen it before, yeah. and I never had. Yeah. But yeah. that was one I did want to see. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And so that was that Playhouse on Park, which is the Playhouse in on, West Hartford on, on Park, Park. Street. <laughs> <laughs> And so they do a good selection of straight plays and musicals. Uh, so if you're in the area, you might want to check them out. It's a very affordable ticket there.
0: Yeah, yeah. we like to see theater. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks for going with me, Emily. Thank you for having me. And thank you for not being annoyed when I got us lost on the way home. (laughs) Well, I also got to go to RJ Julia this week to see David Leibovitz. Um, He has a new book out that's a memoir called La Part, The Delights and Disasters of Making Paris Home. Some of you might be familiar with his name. He wrote a book called My Sweet Paris Life. Years ago. He's also been blogging. He is like one of the original bloggers. He has been a food blogger since the early 1999. Wow, that's ancient. Yeah. 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 And um, this book, you know, is about the experience of obtaining and buying an apartment in Paris, which France, the way they do you purchase real estate is much different than the way we do in the States where we have a multiple listing service that realtors use and that we can browse at our leisure from our home, mm-hmm. where he said in, in Paris and in France in general, most of it is kind of word of mouth and underground, and um, that's how you find your home, and that most of the realtors lie, and it's just a very kind of cutthroat business, I and mean, when you work with realtors, like he said there was one point where he his realtor, he he asked his realtor to call the seller and ask a host of questions and the realtor's on his cell phone talking and talking and talking. And then David realized that his cell phone wasn't even on. Oh my God. That's crazy. <laughs> I thought that was such a great story. Um, but so I guess the premise of this book, it had just come out the day before, so I hadn't even had a chance to look at it. Um, is that the it, uh, purchasing the apartment and then the renovation that ensued was a complete, Disaster, like multi year disaster. I don't about that. (laughs) And he said, part of the disaster is that you're not supposed to be nice Mm -hmm. to people who come and work for you. And his, I'm not sure if they're married, if it's his husband, but his partner is French. And he kept saying to David, like, no, you can't, like, when the contractor comes, you can't offer him brownies. (laughs) And, you know, be nice to him. You're not supposed to do that. So I guess that was part of the failure of the whole process. And when he finally learned to not be nice, it went much better. (laughs) But he's a foodie. David Leibovitz is a foodie. And so this book is much different than his other books that he has. My favorite cookbook is called The Perfect Scoop, which is an ice cream cookbook that Mm -hmm. he wrote. He used to work at Chez Panisse, which is a very, very famous restaurant in Berkeley, California. And he was a pastry chef there. So his background is in pastry and desserts. And that's what he blogs about. He blogs about food. And someone in the audience asked him, you know, why he thinks he's been so successful and has had a blog for so many years. That is very popular. And he said, I think the real success of a blog is to be genuine mm-hmm. and to be open and honest. And so it's not all about sugar and spice and everything nice. It's about, you know, what's happening in your life and um, the good, the bad and the ugly, you yeah. know. And um, he he also said that what he when he moved to Paris and he wanted to become a food writer, the people who were hiring him wanted him to go to all the famous places and write about them. And he was like, you know... First of all, they've been written about already. And secondly, that's not where I want to go. I want to yeah. go to the cool local chocolate shop and write about that. Mm-hmm. You know, so he thinks part of it, too, the success is that he was writing about things that people weren't writing about at the time. Right, yeah. And he takes all of his own photographs on the on the blog. And I'll put the um, the link to the blog in our show notes. The pictures are fantastic. And he talks about, he really just uses a cell phone and the camera's on the cell phone now. And um, But he talks about how he'll bake something and he'll realize, like, the reason he does his own photography, he said, is because he realizes that what he wants to take a picture of might not be what everyone thinks you're going to take a picture of. Mm-hmm. Like, it might not just be the straight slice of chocolate cake. It might be yeah. the plate that the cake is on is more highlighted or something. So. Yeah,
1: that's cool.
0: And he does have help. He said he has technical help because technology changes so often and because he's been doing his blog for so long... He has like a, you know, an archive of 1200 recipes and he said Google will make one little change and then his recipes don't work. Like Not don't, like you can still cook them, but the people can't pull them up successfully or they don't show up in the browser correctly. So he said he does have a host of tech support, but that he still answers every email and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of that. So I thought that was interesting. (laughs) He was very sweet, very kind of endearing. He's from Connecticut originally. He's never been to Connecticut as part of a book tour. So half of the audience, which was packed was his family, <laughs> he said, I come from a big family, lots of cousins, you know, so, um, and it was cute actually, one of his cousins raised his hand and said, you know, I've always been, actually I think it was a woman, I've always wanted to ask you this question, like, how did you end up in Paris, yeah. you know, and he said basically he just wanted to do something different, he had been cooking at Chez Panisse, and he wanted to go live somewhere different and mm-hmm. study pastry, and he did, and then he ended up falling in love with it, yeah, and, kind of figured out a way to stay, mm-hmm. but didn't think when he originally went that he would stay, you know. So, you know, I've, I'm going to be honest, I don't know that I'll read this book, but I've mm-hmm. never read My Sweet Life in Paris, and he's mm-hmm. such a good writer. Like, his blog is so well written, and his cookbooks are so well written, that I do think that that's a book I'm going to pick up. But this yeah. one that he's on book tour for that just came out is called La Part the Delights and Disasters of Making Paris
1: Cool. Oh, I look forward mm. to checking out his blog. Yeah. I don't think I've seen it before. Yeah, so.
0: it's a great blog, especially if you like food. Yeah. In Paris. So. <laughs> food.
1: Well, so while I saw Murder on the Orient Express,
0: ah. we did go to
1: see that. We had planned a day in Boston, but we got hung up in Providence from mayhem that was going on yeah. around the city that day. So we just went home early, <laughs> mm-hmm. found a way to get around ninety five because it was closed in both mm-hmm. directions. Um, so we're all fans of the nineteen seventy four adaptation. And this is P. D. James, right? No, no. it's Agatha Christie. Ag- I'm sorry, yeah. Agatha
0: Christie. That's right.
1: Kenneth Branagh stars in it as oh. Perot. He ad- he directed it. He didn't write the screenplay. That was written by somebody else. But none, all three of us were kind of like, eh.
0: Mm, my mom was
1: disappointed Laura said it took itself too seriously and Mm. I was like
0: meh
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know I just didn't uh, even the CGI effects Mm. just seemed really crude Mm. and I don't think with the amount of talent that was in that cast he didn't uh, none of the characters really tapped into that talent Mm, all the characters seemed a little bit flat and Mm. just there Mm. you know It wasn't a vivacious feeling of intensity, and I think one of the critics I heard, one of the criticisms I heard, just from a a friend, you know, she said in the book, which it's been years since I've read the book, I don't really remember, that there's such a sense of claustrophobia because Mm. they're all stuck on this train because it it hits an avalanche, Mm. and so they're trapped on this train, and somebody is murdered. Who you know, so it's a locked room mystery, right? Yeah, so maybe back up, talk about the book, right? Yeah. So it's like this classic locked room mystery of who killed this person. There's only so many people on this train, had to be one of us. And so, uh, Perot was there kind of like on vacation having a rest, and this happens. So he's forced, he's the investigator, yeah, or, yeah. yeah. he's just kind of there, um, and forced to work on this mur- murder mystery. Yeah, so it was just yeah. kind of like, man. Yeah. Right. And kind of Ron made this ridiculous choice to have this ridiculous mustache. I don't know if you've seen pictures, but like, you know, he traditionally the character has a little twirly mustache. Mm-hmm. So, But this is a mustache that goes from ear to ear, basically, from under mm-hmm. his lip
0: mm-hmm. almost
1: to his ear. Mm-hmm. So, it's,
0: And it's just... It's like distracting kind yeah, of? Yeah, it's
1: distracting yeah. more yeah. than a character right. choice. That's right. how I felt about it all. And there were a lot of scenes outside, hmm. which took away from that claustrophobic feeling hmm. that was mentioned by somebody about the book. So, yeah. And are there not scenes outside in the book? I don't remember. Hmm. I don't think so. Hmm. But like, it's been so long since I've read the book. Yeah. And we were going to watch the 1974 version again, which I remember seeing in the theaters when it came out. Oh, really? Yeah. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, and that was a great cast, too. Like, uh, Ingrid Bergman was in it. Um, so you'll have to Vanessa report back.
0: Redgrave. Watch that one and report yeah. back. And then my
1: now. mom said there was even an older one, an older black and white, that she remembers. Oh, wow. So. When
0: was the book written?
1: In the 30s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. So it's an old one. And it's just a classic. Like, I think that one and then there were none are two of Christie's most famous books,
0: possibly. Although I didn't realize that she, no. I couldn't remember. <laughs> Petey James, oh yeah, but God. you're not a mystery reader. I'm not reader a mystery reader, but so. I should have known that. But, one, probably, well. I've seen the play, so yeah, have you, yeah, I didn't know yeah. that they did a play. I think so. That's I cool. think I feel like the high school did it. Okay, you know, when my kids were in high school, but yeah. I could be confusing that too. It would yeah. be the first thing.
1: <laughs> well, Johnny Dopp is the guy who's murdered. Oh, he plays the fun. character that's murdered, yeah. and and for once, like. I don't know, I'm not a big Johnny Depp fan, but he didn't overact it. Mm. I mean, he was kind of schmucky in his characterization of Mm. the character, who is kind of a schmuck. Um, But, yeah, he didn't overact. Oh, that's good. And And people are happy to see him dead, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so anyway, that was Murder on the Orient Express. Now in theaters.
0: Yes. Well, any upcoming jaunts that you have? Yes, I'm going to
1: be hosting, along with the Book Club Bookstore, a birthday party for Willa Cather. Woo woo! Yeah, Willa's birthday is December 7th. And uh, so at two o'clock that day, we're going to have some birthday cake and a little coffee and a little talk about Willa Cather. And that will also be a jumping off point for uh, the Willa Cather Book Club that we're going to have in 2018. We'll read, probably, we're going to do it quarterly. So we'll, we'll read four of her novels in 2018. Excellent. So yeah. if you're interested, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. But that will be December 7th at the Book Club Bookstore in South Windsor, Connecticut. It's a nice central location, so any of you Catherites in Connecticut, come join yeah. us.
0: We get to meet Chris, too. <laughs> and Emily, if she can come. That's right. I'm hoping to. Yeah. What about you? I have, I've already talked about this, but so I'll talk about it um, upon my return, but I'll be going to th- visit the Barry Center this Tuesday, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow, and then over Thanksgiving break, um, my kids and I are going to Montreal, so I haven't had a chance to look it up yet, but I'm hoping to go to some bookstores in Montreal. Any listeners out there that know any good bookstores in Montreal, please email bookcougars at gmail.com. So, those are my upcoming jaunts. Excellent. How about upcoming reads? Upcoming reads first on the list is Fodor's Montreal and Quebec City. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been there, so I'm really looking forward to it. We only have a few days, so I want to pack in a lot. And then um, I am hoping to get, I have it on reserve, and I'm hoping it comes in soon at the library, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky Hmm. by Leslie Nika Arama. I probably just butchered that name. That just won the um, Kirkus Prize. It's a debut collection of stories that take place in Nigeria. And then I also have, which will be no surprise to people, Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson (laughs) McCullers. So I have a lot I'm hoping to read um, because I'm getting some airplane time, which is exciting. Yeah. Hopefully I won't have to work the whole time. I'm going to try to, you know, I was listening to Gretchen Rubin on her podcast talking about travel and one of the new gifts she's given to herself is that when she gets on an airplane instead of working, which she used to do, she does pleasure reading now. That's great. So my last trip I just took, I didn't, I was working. And this one I was thinking, i probably going to have to work on the way to prepare for the meeting, but maybe on the way back I can yeah. treat myself nice. to reading. Good. So, yeah.
1: All right, cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, so The Heart of Hunter is on my list. Um, but I'll also be reading a new book that's coming out later this month uh, by David Poyer called Hunter Killer, and that's another nautical mystery that I'll be reviewing for a Criminal Element. Oh, great. Yeah, and he has a whole slew of books. I don't think I've read anything by him, David Poyer, so
0: we'll see. Yeah. Excellent. We'll probably read that one by our next episode. So. Yeah. And then coming up this week is the National Book Award winners are going to be announced, yes. too, so maybe yeah. we'll get a chance to talk about that next time we're together. Totally, yeah. Keep your yeah. eyes out for that, r- yeah. listeners. It'll be fun to see. I'm I'm I have I have my wish list of winners. We'll see what happens, <laughs> and um, we're gonna not see each other and and be meeting again till after Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving, happy everybody! Thanksgiving, yeah, yeah. I hope you get. I hope you fill your tummy, and I hope you get to get some good reading time as well. Yes, happy That's reading, everybody! <laughs> yeah. Happy reading.
1: Thanks so much for listening to The Book Cougars with Emily Fine and Chris Wallach. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter under Book Cougars. Please consider leaving us a review on whatever app you use to listen to us. It can help other listeners find us. Thank you.